Okay, that's on page 910 of the Black Bibles in front of you. So if you have one, please open there. You'll need it as we work our way through this passage together. 910. While you turn there, let me just pray for our time together. Father, we ask, desperate in need for your Holy Spirit to come and help me so that I might preach your word faithfully and truthfully and that your spirit might make it effective and help us so that we would hear your word and that it might produce in us the same things it produced on the day when this passage was spoken of, that it might cut us to the heart and cause us to come again with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Let your spirit be poured out on all of us that that might happen. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been about five years since Jim and Lena went overseas and left our church, and so I don't know if you've all met them, but if you have met them, especially if you've met Jim, you know what a character he is. If you've ever met Jim, there's a good chance that if you've been around him for a little bit, you're going to hear a good story and have a few good laughs. So for example, he recently told me of this time where he was upgraded on a flight to business class. Uh, Jim, as you know, works for Bombay Teen Challenge, and so he's made lots of trips back and forth across the ocean from Bombay to the U.S., and usually when he does that, he does what he can only do, which is to book the cheapest flight possible and take that across the ocean. And when you book such a flight, there's no special treatment, there's no customer service, they pack the passengers in like sardines, and their only goal is to get you from A to B safely. So he told me, for example, of this time where it was lunch, and so they're wheeling the cart around, and they make their way through the plane, and by the time they finally get to him, there's nothing good left. So it's just the vegetarian salad option. And so he asked the flight attendant, ma'am, this is a really long flight. Is there anything that you might still have? And so the flight attendant yells to another one, hey, 56D wants to know if we've got anything left. And Jim said, you know, at that point, you're not even a person anymore. No name. You're just a seat number. 56D. And so the flight attendant yelled back, tell 56D we ain't got nothing left. He can have it if he wants, right? So that's what you are, 56D. Well, one day, he's online, and for some reason, some computer glitch, he got chosen to be upgraded to business class. He said the moment that happened, he felt in his soul business class, right? So, so he turned around and he looked at all the commoners in economy in their long lines with their heavy luggage and slowly wading around. And he, on the other hand, was ushered into the plane. And when he got onto the plane, he was no longer 56D. Now it was, welcome, Mr. Verghese. Glad to have you, Mr. Verghese. We're so glad you're flying with us today, Mr. Verghese. Let me show you to your seat, Mr. Verghese. Would you like anything to drink, Mr. Verghese? I mean, he had died and gone to heaven. He sat down on this comfy chair with lots of leg room, and he was handed a menu. Not a card with some options, a full menu. And he started to read, and he said as he read the options, his mouth started to water. The appetizer was going to be smoked duck and cranberry with pumpkin seed salad with brined carrots. Following that would be Thai-style coconut cream, Korean-inspired chicken with udon noodles and garlic alfredo pasta with portobello mushrooms. And to finish it off was going to be warm apple pie and salted caramel bars and various dessert cups of various kinds. He could hardly contain his excitement. He said that it was all that he could do not to squeal, right? And, and he had to put on the show that he wasn't a commoner from economy class. This was business class gym now, right? And so he says to the flight attendant, ma'am, 
You can picture him having to work it, ma'am, 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 when will this be served? And this is what he heard in response. Mr. Verghese, anytime you want. In fact, once we take off and we're at cruising altitude, whenever you want, whatever you want, just let us know and we'd be happy to bring it to you. He had died and gone to heaven. And so here's his plan. He had mapped out everything that he wanted to eat. And he was just going to close his eyes for a few minutes. And then when they're at cruising altitude, he's going to have his feast. And so he slept for what felt like a few minutes, feeling super refreshed. He calls the flight attendant over, essentially says, let me have it, bring it to me. And the flight attendant says, Mr. Verghese, I'm so sorry. We're preparing to land. All the food has been stowed away. You see, all those international flights had caught up with him, and he slept for 13 hours straight and missed the whole thing. In a way that only Jim could tell that story, he lamented, sort of with tears in his eyes, and said, I was right there, and I missed it, missed the whole thing. Now, you can picture that, can't you? You can feel it, couldn't you? To look forward to something like that, to have that anticipation build that way, to have it right in front of you only, to miss the whole thing. It was right there, in front of you. You saw it, and you missed the whole thing. Now, albeit in a far deeper and more significant way, that is exactly how the people in this passage in Acts 2 feel by the end of Peter's sermon. In fact, they are saying within their souls, my God, we missed it. Oh my God, he was right there in front of our eyes. We had heard about him, we had seen him, people had talked about him, he was right there this whole time. And we missed it. It's Acts chapter 2, right? This is 9, 10 on your black Bibles. Peter is preaching, and he's preaching his very first sermon. And it is not bad for your first sermon, for by the time he is done, 3,000 of his critics, 3,000 skeptics, 3,000 opponents suddenly are convicted and converted by what he says. They are going to feel by the end of his sermon such a deep spiritual pain that they are asking themselves, how did we miss it? Jesus was right here, and we took this 13-hour nap, and we missed the whole thing. In fact, the way Dr. Luke says it is, they were cut to the heart, is the phrase. They were cut to the heart. They were spiritually pierced. They were stabbed in their soul. A blade went through their heart because, friends, this is what the Christian message does. If you hear it right, if you receive it right, the Christian message will cut you. In fact, if you've never been cut, you're not a Christian. That's what the passage would say. It's this scalpel, this double-edged scalpel, whereby this divine surgeon will wound you and heal you at the same time. It's by cutting you that he is saving you. And if you've never had that happen, you, this passage would say, have never become a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to be cut to the heart. And so a good question for you would be, have you ever experienced that? 
Has the good news of Jesus Christ ever cut your heart? And please be careful with what I'm asking. I'm not asking, have you ever been to church? I'm not even asking if you've prayed a prayer or done good things. I'm asking, have you ever experienced this spiritual cutting to the heart? Because if you haven't, I want to say you've missed it. And perhaps today, the Spirit of God might do to you what he did to the people in that day. If you're here and you have had that experience, perhaps the question you might consider asking is, how can the Holy Spirit use me to bear witness in order that people are cut to the heart, even as he used Peter that day? What did God the Spirit do through Peter in such a way that God the Spirit might do through me to the people that I am called to be a witness to as well? That's a good question because chances are most of us will not have to preach sermons. And maybe none of us will ever have to preach to 3,000 people at one time. But for all who are in Christ, you are called to be a witness for Jesus. And so you might ask yourself, how might the Holy Spirit of God use me to witness to the people in my day, that the Spirit of God might cut people to the heart, even as he did in Peter's day? Here's the passage. It starts in Acts 2, verse 14. Here's what it says. But Peter... Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, if you're just jumping in with us, you're, you're jumping into a conversation that already started. So let me just fill you in. Peter has stood up, and to understand what he's saying here... Jesus, Acts has told us, ascended. He died, rose again, ascended into heaven. Before he went to heaven, he said, when I go up, I will send the Spirit down. I will no longer be near you in the flesh, but I will dwell within you through the Holy Spirit. So hang tight and the Spirit will come. And when the Spirit comes, he will fill you with power and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So Acts 2, the passage we saw last week, they hang tight. The Spirit floods, falls down, monsoon rains on all of them. So much so that they are all filled with the Holy Spirit and supernaturally, through no ability of their own, they start speaking in foreign languages. No training whatsoever, no Rosetta Stone, and yet here they are. They speak in Italian and German and Russian, all these languages, so that this multilingual, multinational, multiracial crowd of people who were in Jerusalem that day gathered around hearing the mighty works of God, what God was doing through Jesus in their own language, in their ears. And so they ask, what is happening here? What is this? In fact, that's the end of the verse 12. They ask, what does this mean? This multitude of thousands of people gather around as these people are speaking in all these foreign languages, and they go, what does this mean? Someone explain what's happening here. And so in verse 13, some of the critics of the day stood up and said, we'll tell you what's happening. These people are all drunk. They're all drunk with sweet wine. That's why they're talking gibberish like this. And it's that which causes Peter to stand up in verse 14 with the other apostles to say what he says. Men, listen. These people are not drunk. In fact, I want to say this. It would serve us well as those who desire to be spirit-empowered witnesses for Jesus to notice how Peter responds. This crowd of thousands raised their objection, and Peter doesn't get defensive. 
He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't ridicule them or condemn them or speak condescendingly to them. In fact, he engages their objection, which is what witnesses for Jesus have to learn to do. What are the objections to Christianity in our day and in our culture? And how do we, as Peter did here, winsomely engage them? In fact, you'll even notice there's a touch of humor in how Peter responds. He says, listen, they're not drunk. Essentially, he says, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, right? That's the third hour. 6 a.m. was the start of the day. Third hour means it's only 9 a.m. Listen, even tailgaters for Eagles games don't get drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning. You know how hard it is to get drunk by 9 a.m.? It's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. So here's what he does. He says, instead of being drunk, let me explain what's happening. You said, what does this mean? Let me tell you. And now here's what Peter does. He does what every spirit-empowered witness for Jesus must do. He takes their objections and brings them to the Bible. He takes their questions and answers it with the Bible. You know why? Because the Spirit of God cuts people to the heart, and the way he does that has always been and will always be through the Word of God. It is not the wisdom of man. It is not your cleverness. It's not your ability to answer the really hard questions. So your coworker comes and says, what about that? You don't know. And so you don't have to be brilliant. But what a witness for Jesus does is constantly bring people back to the Bible. Spirit-empowered witnesses for Jesus are Bible people. Isn't it something here, by the way? Peter, if you remember, doesn't have a scroll in his back pocket that he can bring out. He doesn't have an iPhone that he can scroll through. And yet you'll see in this passage, he will quote and explain and apply large chunks of the Bible. No scroll to look out, no phone to pull out. And yet, by the time this passage is done, he will have referenced Joel chapter 2. He will have recited Psalm 16. He will have recited Psalm 110 all from his heart, all from his memory, all from the word of God having saturated this witness for Jesus. The spirit of God cuts people to the heart through word-saturated witnesses. Word-saturated witnesses. I mean, don't we desire then to be witnesses like that who do know Jesus in such a way that we too could quote and explain and apply the Bible to the people that God has called us to. This is not said to intimidate us. It's certainly not said to produce guilt in you, especially if you're a newer Christian. If you're just learning to walk in your faith, you're just figuring out how to thumb through the Bible, let alone to know it well. But what it is to do is to inspire all of us to say, we want to be Bible people. I read that it was said of John Bunyan, you know, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, They said, if you cut Bunyan, he would bleed Bible. They said, prick Bunyan, and his blood, you'll find, is Bibline. Because the man was so saturated with God's word, so much so that when Bunyan spoke, you could hardly tell the difference between his words and God's words. It was like sugar that had been dissolved in coffee, and you couldn't separate the two anymore. So God's word had so saturated this man that his blood was Bibline. Don't you want the same to be said of you, of us? If anything, what this passage does is renew our confidence that it is not human wisdom, but God's word that the Spirit of God uses to cut men's heart. So go to your workplace with that. 
Go to your neighborhood with that. Go to your relatives with that. Go to the person you are positive will never receive Christ with that. The Spirit and the Word. That's what Peter used that day. And that's what we are to use as well. So Peter brings the Bible to this group of objectors. They are a Jewish audience meaning they had known their Torah, they had read their Bibles, and he says, you want to know what's happening? I'll explain exactly what's happening. And then he says, essentially, in fact, you've already read what's happening. In fact, you've been waiting for it. You've been anticipating it. You've been drooling for it, but you missed it. In fact, you read about this already. This is what, verse 16, the prophet Joel was uttering. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, for the sake of time, I won't read it. But if you look at Acts 2, verses 16 down to 21, he quotes the prophet Joel. Now, Joel, just two seconds of background. Joel is in the Old Testament, the first half of your Bibles. And he was writing at a time when the people of Israel were neck deep in sin. And God was promising that he was going to send judgment to this agricultural society. He said, the heavens will not give rain. Locusts are going to come. Armies will invade. Judgment is coming. But Joel writes his book to plead with the people that they would repent and turn and get God's forgiveness. They might be saved and spared from the judgment of God. And Joel even says, God intends, if you'll do that, to show you mercy, to forgive you. In fact, so abundant was God's mercy going to be that he says one day God will not just open the heavens with rain, he will rain down his Holy Spirit. That's the prophecy. That in the last days, the heavens will monsoon rain the Holy Spirit down on all flesh and the Spirit will be on all of God's people. And you know what Peter is saying? Peter is simply saying this what you just saw and heard is that, what you had read. That's essentially it. In fact, in the King James Version, verse 16 is literally translated, but this is that which the prophet Joel spoke. You hear what he's saying? This, you hearing what you're seeing, them speaking in these tongues, the Spirit filling them, is that, that you had been reading, that you had been waiting for, that you had been longing for, drooling for, this is that. And you missed it. This is what the prophet Joel was speaking of. And remember, what's Joel's message? Joel's message is judgment is coming, so repent and seek God for forgiveness. And then verse 21 of Acts 2 says, and, all, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here's what Joel's saying. Judgment is coming before it does. Here is this moment of mercy. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what Peter's entire sermon is? Peter's entire sermon is judgment is coming. But now is this moment of mercy. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now if you were to ask, who is this Lord? And what is this name that we should call upon in order to be saved? Peter would say, that's a great question, because the next section of his sermon, how it turns there is, let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. If your question is, what is the name of the Lord that we must call upon in order to be saved? Peter's response would be, let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. And he shows us, by the way, 
that if we're going to be witnesses for Jesus, witnesses for Jesus not only handle the objections of people winsomely, not only bring them to the Bible, witnesses for Jesus are Christ-centered. They're Jesus-centered, right? What does he do? He starts telling them about Jesus. He's biblical, but what does the Bible do? If you take people to the Bible, the Bible is going to take them to Jesus because the whole Bible is about Jesus. Peter is convinced here that Joel is about Jesus and Psalm 16 is about Jesus and Psalm 110 is about Jesus. The whole of the Bible is about Jesus. And so he takes them to Jesus. And from verses 22 all the way down to 35, he tells them about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He gets this one moment to bear witness for Jesus And he'll tell the people about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. For the sake of time, I'll just walk you through it very quickly. He tells them about his life, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He says to this crowd of thousands of people, Listen, you know, you were there, you heard it, you saw it, you heard about it, you heard about the mighty things that Jesus of Nazareth did. And what he adds here is, and through all of that, God was giving his endorsement over Jesus. Through everything Jesus did, you heard about the the deaf hearing, you saw the blind seeing, you watched the lame walking, you witnessed the dead men rising, and through every one of his life and ministry, God from heaven was putting his stamp of approval saying, this is my Messiah, this is the one. God was signing off on everything through the life and ministry of Jesus, but you missed it. It was right there. In fact, one Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you must come from God because no one can do what you're doing if God was not with him. God was endorsing, signing, approving of Jesus through his ministry, but you missed it. And not only did you miss it, look at what you did. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's saying what? Not only did you take a spiritual nap through all of Jesus' life and ministry, then you took this Jesus and you crucified him. And we'll come back to that again. And he says, moreover, you did it at the hands of lawless men. It's probably a reference to the Romans. You gave him up to your sworn enemies. No Jewish person would give another Jew to the hated Romans, but you did that. You handed him over to the lawless enemies, and here's what you missed through all that. While you were doing that, all of this, however, was happening according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, even the prophet Isaiah had said about Jesus that it was the will of God to crush him. That for our transgressions, to bear our iniquities, God would deliver his own son over to death. And so here's what Peter's simply saying. This was no ordinary death. This wasn't just another martyr. God was at work in this death. This death was significant in ways you couldn't have imagined, but you missed it. And not only did you miss his life and his death, you missed his resurrection and his ascension. If you just look at verses 24 all the way down to 34. 
In these 10 verses, he quotes from two different Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, simply to say, this Jesus, who you missed through his life and you missed the meaning of his death, this Jesus didn't stay dead. He couldn't. He says, you know why? You had read about it. You were waiting for it. You were drooling for it. And you missed it. You know why? Even the prophet David, back in the day, in Psalm 16, had prophesied that one day the Holy One of God would die, but that God would not deliver him over to Hades, wouldn't abandon him, wouldn't let his flesh see corruption. And then here's Peter's argument. If you go back and read these 10 verses on your own, you'll hear what he says. He essentially says to them, but listen, brothers, you were waiting for this, but you know it couldn't have been about David that David was speaking. You know why? He died, and his tomb is right here, and we all know he's in there. And through the passing of the times, his flesh has been corrupted. David was speaking, but David was not talking about himself. We know because his tomb is right here. You know what's amazing about this, by the way? It had only been two months since Jesus died. And yet no one in the crowd raised their hand and said, yeah, well, we know where Jesus' tomb is as well. It had only been two months, not a long time, not centuries. Two months, and yet no one in the crowd raised their hand to say, oh yeah, well, here's Jesus' body, and it couldn't have been about him either. Because why? Two months had only passed, and yet there was widespread news that the tomb was empty, and you had to give an account of what happened. And Peter says, I'll tell you exactly what happened. David had said, you had been waiting, the Holy One would not be abandoned to the grave, his flesh would not see corruption, oh, by the way, we saw Jesus rise from the dead. So David said the Messiah would not corrupt in the grave. We saw Jesus not corrupt in the grave. What do you think A equals B means? This Jesus is the one you were waiting for. He goes on to quote Psalm 110 about the ascension of the Lord as well, how the Lord went up and sent the Holy Spirit. But here's the point of it all. Peter is saying, whether you're speaking about Joel 2 or Psalm 16 or Psalm 110, this is that. This Pentecost, the pouring of the Spirit, is that, Joel 16, Joel 2. This resurrection of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ is that, from Psalm 16. This ascension of Jesus into the heaven, pouring his Holy Spirit down on all flesh, is that, from Psalm 110. This Jesus is the one you had turned page after page after page. You had longed for, you had waited for, you had desired, you had drooled for. And when he got here, you killed him. You crucified him. That's what you did. When he finally arrived, you drove his body onto a nail, onto a tree. Verse 36 and 37, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You could almost feel the crowd, couldn't you? It's like you can't put toothpaste back into the tube. You can hear their question. When I read this for the first time in preparing for Acts, could you imagine a people that had waited for millennia 
for their Messiah. You can't put toothpaste back into the tomb. Could you imagine them going, what have we done? And now what do we do? Could you imagine them? You were waiting for Yahweh, for the Lord to come. You were waiting for your Messiah, the Christ to come. Well, Jesus was both. He was Lord and Christ, and you crucified him. You were waiting for the deliverer, and you handed the deliverer over to the Romans. You were waiting for Yahweh to come, and the Lord God came in the flesh to you, and you took that flesh and put it on a cross. And you drove nails through his hands and nails through his feet and a spear through his side and thorns on his brow. That's what you did when Yahweh came. You crucified him. Hearing this, they were stabbed in the soul. They were pierced, thinking about the one they had just pierced. They were pierced in the heart, thinking the one they had just pierced. God sent his Messiah. And we killed him. Yahweh came and we crucified him. They would sing with us as we have done on Good Friday together. Oh my God, what have we done? We have destroyed your son. They would sing with us. Oh my God, what have we done? We have destroyed God's son. And here's the thing, if you look at Jesus on the cross and you hear Peter say, you crucified him, and you're able to know that it wasn't just to the crowd then, but it was to you, that means the Spirit's doing some work in your heart. Because any Christian is one who knows that what Peter said applies to them just as much as it did to that crowd 2,000 years ago. So that the Spirit of God convinces you, here's the cutting work of the Spirit, He looks you in the heart and says, you killed him. You crucified him. You did it. And if you go, listen, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. You know what's amazing about this? You can imagine some within the crowd, they weren't there. There's 3,000 plus people. Some of them just came into town for Pentecost. They weren't there. Some of them, at least you could imagine, weren't there to scream out, crucify him, crucify him. And yet Peter looks at all of them and says, you crucified him. And no one raised their hand and said, we weren't there. Instead, they were cut to the heart. You know why? Anyone who understands the Christian message knows, I did that. I did that. He was on that tree because of me. I did that. It was me missing out on who God was. It's me still missing out on who God is in my life. My rejection of God, that's what put him on the tree. He's there because of me. If anyone knows this well, it's the speaker of the sermon itself. Nobody knew better who crucified Jesus than the preacher. Peter knew because two months ago, not in front of 3,000 objectors, when a little girl had came and said to him, Weren't you with Jesus? This Peter, this Peter said, I swear to God, I have no idea who that man is. And one of the gospels says, as that moment, the rooster crowed and Jesus looked at him and they locked eyes. And the text says that Peter wept bitterly and ran away. 
Nobody knew better than the preacher himself who Jesus died for, who crucified Jesus. Anyone who understands the Christian message knows you did it. Brother, sister, young, old, you did it. I did it. It's like in the movie Passion, if you've ever seen that. They say there's one Mel Gibson cameo in the whole movie because he wanted to appear into the movie one time. And the only time Mel Gibson appears in The Passion is his hand is the one that drives the nail into Jesus on that cross because he felt like that's the one part he played in this whole thing. Every Christian goes, that's exactly my story as well. It was my sin, we sing, that held him there until it was accomplished. I did it. You did it. It's only when the Holy Spirit convinces your heart that you crucified Christ, that this spiritual cutting can happen. But here's the last thing. When this blade cuts your heart, it both pierces and heals at the same time. Because you begin to see on one side of the blade, I did that to him. But the other side of the blade says, he did that for me. He did that for me. And it's seeing that second side that cuts you by the Spirit and makes you a Christian. It's not just feeling bad that you had done something wrong. It's seeing the one who had done this for you, that he loved you enough to be crucified for you. And that's what leads you to true repentance. That's what leads this crowd to say, brothers, what should we do? Their question is essentially, tell me anything now. Because if he loves me like this, love me like that, I will do anything for him. And that, by the way, friend, is how you know you've become a Christian. When what you feel bad is not just the bad you did, but who you did it against. That's repentance. You think about it. Judas and Peter both betrayed Jesus. Both had done the worst wrong. Both wept bitterly about it. You know they both felt horrible for their sin. But at the end of the day, Judas only saw one side of the blade, and all he felt was this crushing, devastating guilt for what he had done. Peter saw the other side that said, yes, but he did that for me. Enough to restore and repent and go back to Jesus. Being guilty and feeling bad isn't what makes you a Christian. Being a Christian goes, my heart now is his because his heart was mine. And now when I do something wrong, I'm not just afraid because what will he do to me? I already know what he did for me. And so the question becomes, how can I do this to him? That's what a Christian wrestles with. How could I do this to him who gave his life for me? And so they ask, brothers, tell us, we can't undo it. We missed it. Now what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, this promise is for you and for your children, for those who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls, and that with many more words he exhorted them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter's sermon had one emphasis, 
before judgment comes. Here's this moment of mercy. Repent. Call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. And what is that name? That name is Jesus of Nazareth. Because God was endorsing his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And you have, may have missed it your whole life. Even today, you may be here and Jesus at most is mom and dad's God. Or something you go to because you grew up in this culture. Or a good religious leader. Or a fairy tale. Well, you missed it. And this moment, the Spirit of God might show you, in fact, cut you to the heart. This is what you did to him. But in love for you, this is what he did for you. Let's pray together. God, we pray that your spirit, even now, would for the first time or for the thousandth time freshly cut our heart as we consider who Jesus is, his worth, his greatness, the wonder of his life. But we understand, O Lord, by your spirit that we were the ones who crucified him. And we pray that the spirit would cut us enough to show us that he did that for us. Bring new life to us, freshly cut us to the heart with fresh love and gratitude and obedience to Jesus, that we would say, tell us, we'll do anything. And we would hear the good news of repenting and coming to the forgiveness of our sins through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Give us this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.